Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello? Matt? Sorry, guys. Yeah, you're just breaking up a little bit. Oh. I think I can hear a little bit of thunder in the background. It, it, it is absolutely, it is, it, here, here in Tallahassee, it is storming very hard. So if you think you're <laughs> hearing thunder, it's, that's exactly what you're hearing. <laughs> if I disappear, I promise I didn't abandon everyone. It's, uh, I literally might lose power. There's no sun up in the sky. It's storming in Florida. Stormy when I reach Florida Bureau Chief Matt Dixon, and the dramatic weather is a surprisingly fitting backdrop. Welcome from uh, the beautiful Sunshine State. To talk about the 2024, yeah, you heard that right, 2024, political aspirations of some Florida politicians. My name is Rick Scott. I'm Marco Rubio. Matt Gates. I am Ron DeSantis. And what all their history tells us about the Republican Party in one of the most important swing states in the country. Can you just sum up Florida politics for me in a word? Can you think of a single word to do that? Crazy, I suppose. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I, 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 if I had to go with just one, I would say crazy or, or interesting maybe. But, but I'm going to stick with crazy because uh, it's, it's, it's the one I like more. I'm Nancy Cook sitting in for Scott Bland, and this is Nerdcast. Well, I wanted to talk to you this week because you have a piece in the magazine that's basically a Game of Thrones, Florida style, where the Republican <laughs> Party seems in a fight against itself. And what I really found so interesting about your piece was that it really looks ahead to 2024. And that seems so far away, 2024. But you do talk about some of the key Florida politicians who you expect to run for president then. Can you tell me why a presidential election four years away matters now and what these Florida politicians have to do with it? Well, I mean, it, it matters now for us because these guys are gearing up for it. Um, I mean, you can't walk into a downtown Tallahassee bar without hearing 2024 chatter. It's sort of the Politico class here in Florida is 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 aware of it. They're 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 fl fanning the flames, and and, and it's really um, everyone sort of has their eye on these three or four different camps, uh, kind of gearing up for a run at the White House. Well. A news cycle right now lasts about five minutes, as, as we all know. There is some sense of, of these teams uh, looking at a run for the White House. And in this moment right now with coronavirus is particularly unique because the four folks that, that we wrote about, Governor Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, Florida's two U.S. senators, Rick Scott, Rick Scott, Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio, then Representative Matt Gates, Matt Gates are all kind of in their own various roles in the news, um, making national headlines on the pandemic. So all, each of their respective teams and then those respective, you know, potential candidates are all sort of using this moment as a, you know, kind of a, a jumping off point to, you know, at least have, have a trial balloon. For someone who might not be familiar with Florida politics, can you just explain why this state might be so important at the end of the day, Matt? Well, it's one of the nation's most important swing states, and, and that's kind of what it always comes down to. 
some folks might have heard the term, and I think most people probably listening to this have the I-4 corridor. It's a 12-county it's a region in central Florida that extends from the Tampa Bay area on the Gulf Coast over to Daytona Beach on the, the Atlantic Coast. And it's just packed full of swing voters. Uh, year after year after year, there are studies that are done that there are folks in that region that essentially pick presidents because they're, they're, they're persuadable. And it's the reason that Tampa and the Orlando, Tampa and Orlando, even though they aren't you know, the big biggest metro areas in the country, they are some of the most expensive media markets in the country. And that's for a reason. There are persuadable voters there. And as so goes the I-4 corridor, so goes the state of Florida. And there is a long history of Florida helping pick presidents. It's not absolute by any means, but it's certainly helpful to have Florida on your side. And there's 12 counties in the middle of this state. It's expensive to reach those voters. But if you do, you know, if you can persuade them, it, uh, it certainly is beneficial. Your piece really zeroes in on these handful of Florida politicians like the governor and senators and an ambitious congressman named Matt Gatz. Can you just tell me a little bit more about them and their ambitions? Yeah, well, well, Governor Ron DeSantis here, he, he's a, a first-term governor here in Florida. He was a kind of a backbench member of Congress for three terms, made sort of a name in, in conservative circles, kind of came up through the, the rise of the Tea Party. And one of the quotes from, from someone I talked to, a longtime friend of his, was Ron DeSantis has wanted to be president since he was in high school. And it oh, sort wow. of, t- it sort <laughs> of, t- it, 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 this, this wasn't a high school friend sort of parodying that. He was trying to capture uh, the governor's personality. He's always been sort of a political animal, politically ambitious. When he ran for governor here in Florida, it was relatively unexpected. He wasn't a well-known politician. The, the, a grassroots Republican, a local county chair, probably couldn't have picked Ron DeSantis out of a lineup before he ran for governor. So it kind of came out of nowhere. But once everyone got to know him, um, it was clear he had ambitions beyond Florida. And, and I brought that quote up just to kind of signal most people in his orbit have long saw either the ambition run for the White House or, or a future run. So that's the governor here in, in Florida who's, you know, right now sort of facing uh, some, some difficult headlines at times about his coronavirus response. He is getting increasingly defensive and sort of really tapping his inner Trump to a degree. And we, we've written about that a little bit about getting aggressive with his language, lashing out at enemies, including the media. And he's getting a little more defensive um, on his coronavirus response. And that's his sort of strategy at the moment. Um, and we'll we'll leave him aside for for right now. That that's the governor here. Then we have Senator Rick Scott, who is the former two term governor here in Florida, and he's couldn't be more night and day different from from Florida's governor Ron DeSantis. He's a a very uh, robotic sort of speaker. He's very 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 straightforward. And he has has also kind of long sought this. He was a health, former healthcare CEO before he got into politics, and he oversaw the largest uh, Medicare fraud settlement in the history of the country. And that was his jumping off point into politics. That's how he was first known. So I think there's been a long thought process uh, about Rick Scott, about he ran for governor and wanted to get into politics to kind of so that wouldn't be the top line of his obituary. So there's <laughs> an, an idea that two-term governor of Florida, maybe a president one day, those are all things that would trump the idea that he was a healthcare CEO for a company that had this massive fraud settlement. So uh, he's another one. And and I, I, I talk about Governor DeSantis and Rick Scott together for a reason. They're both folks who I think have the people in their orbits and people who pay attention to them have long seen as is as, as people who wanted to, to use Florida for higher aspirations. 
And the the whole tone and tenor with with the discussion of, of of Senator Scott is that he likes to be an executive. He was a hospital CEO. He was a governor for eight years, and now he's in the Senate, in the legislative branch. Where you know, obviously, he's one of a hundred as opposed to the guy, and that sort of chafes at him a bit. Is is some of our reporting has 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 fleshed out. He 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 prefers to be in that executive role, you know, i.e. a you know a presidential role. And that's kind of, um, you know, the, the direction I think most people see him see him heading. Um, the third third guy we include is Marco Rubio, who everyone knows. He made the, you know, a 2016 run that sort of sort of fell apart when he he was uh, dubbed uh, little Marco and, and then sort of went went after President Trump in a, a debate that that, you know, was sort of panned widely. And he had to drop out after he got beat pretty badly here in Florida uh, in his home state. And he isn't in the same tier as we put it in the story as, as Scott and DeSantis. I think there's a hundred percent agreement among folks we talk to, certainly, that Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott want to run for president in 2024. They might not, don't get me wrong, but they're eyeing it right now. Marco Rubio, there are some folks here in Florida who think he might have missed his moment. His moment may have passed, while others say he's talented enough um, and ambitious enough to to chart a path forward if if he really wants to. Matt, do you feel like Rubio has overcome what people criticized him for in 2016? You know, Trump gave him this very effective nickname, Little Marco. I I know some people tried to paint him as someone who had flip-flopped on policy positions. Has he come back politically from, from those criticisms? Uh, I, I do. Um, I, I think he's really scratched his way back into Trump's orbit in the sense, which is obviously a prerequisite in the current Republican Party for national viability through sort of a foreign policy approach. Um, in, in when Secretary of State Pompeo was, you know, I guess, gosh, at this point, it feels like a long time, but he was seen as someone who, you know, might leave his post and run for Senate, I guess could still happen. But about a month or so ago, that was kind of in the news. Uh, Rubio was, was you know, rumored down here at least to be on the short list to, to join the Trump administration, which I think was a signal to a lot of people he was uh, a little bit out of the Trump desert. Because you're right, of the, of the four people we're talking to, DeSantis, talking about DeSantis, Scott, and Gates are natural fit for for this administration, for President Trump, as far as supporting him and maybe getting the support. Rubio isn't. He's sort of the the odd duck here where it, it's unclear where he stands with, with the president. But I think there's been some signals recently where, um, you know, they, they might not go on a picnic in the park together, but they're at least not on little Marco terms anymore. And tell me about the other people in your piece. The last one we're including in sort of this gang of four down here in Florida is Matt Gates, who is a relatively new member of Congress, but he has made a big splash nationally. He does the Fox News circuit regularly. He's one of the most vocal defenders of, of President Trump. And he's, he's sort of um, trying to make his name nationally now. He doesn't have what Rubio and Scott have, I don't think quite yet, but he's, he's certainly well on his way. Um, he came up through the ranks in Florida. He was a member of the, the state house here and was seen as sort of a, a golden-tongued knife, knife fighter during Florida's floor sessions and, and sort of fights over policy and legislation here. And he's really taken that theme and sort of mentality to Congress. 
he is the it's become more of a I guess darling of the conservative media sort of ecosystem. He's getting a lot of play. Uh, a lot of those websites and a lot of those magazines have written about potential 2024 bids, which is what put him on our radar for this specific conversation. But he's getting less attention in a, a home state here in Florida. I mean, we we talked to you know 20 25 people. He didn't come up as much as the others, but he certainly has the skill set as a politician. He has Trump by his side to the degree that will matter moving forward and sort of the national conservative media outlets love him which you know when we're talking about a, a presidential election cycle this far out it is a recipe or, or a formula for you know viability at least yeah one thing about matt gates is that he for instance went to camp david with trump uh, on a recent weekend and a few other house republicans he was on fox news all the time he was beside trump on impeachment so i i feel like in washington dc he's really seen as a someone who's by the president's side quite a bit. He's also trying to make the distinction is is sort of anti-war. He, he's more of the pacifist cut. He has um, been, when when the president was, was in the past in, in some foreign policy conversations flirting with military action, Matt Gates was kind of always the advisor or the voice, at least publicly. I don't know to the degree that he was in the president's ear but at least publicly was trying to talk him down a bit. So that is, I think, how Gates, if a, a sort of a national campaign or, or a national push for him were to materialize, that is how he would try to, uh, you know, make, make himself distinct from the what is no doubt going to be a very large, uh, you know, 2024 primary crowd. There are a couple of key moments and scenes that you outline in your piece, Matt, and I'm wondering if you could walk us through them. One of my favorites was the bad blood between Rick Scott and DeSantis that happened during that transition when DeSantis was coming in to take over the governor position. What happened there? Yeah, it's sort of, uh, honestly, there are still, you know, we, we've spent a couple months with this and there's still a couple unanswered questions about exactly what the motivation for that was. But the storyline generally is when a, when a governor takes over for another governor of the same party, there's generally supposed to be a fairly smooth transition. You know, everyone builds their administration, everyone's the same party, a lot of the same players, a lot of the same themes from a policy and political standpoint. But with this one from the drop between Governor Scott leaving and Governor DeSantis transitioning into the governor's mansion in the Capitol, there was there was bad blood. Staffs were clashing. Um, the governor, then Governor Scott, wouldn't let Governor-elect DeSantis talk to some of his administration officials. They wanted to talk to to things like agency heads and stuff like that about staying on and potentially joining, you know, the DeSantis administration. And and some of Scott's folks were fairly territorial to start and saying, don't talk to our people. Um, And this is all, mind you, against the backdrop of a recount. Um, And uh, Governor Scott, when he he won his Senate race by, gosh, I I forget the exact number, but something like 10,000 votes. And Ron DeSantis won his race by like 40,000. In Florida, that means a recount. So there's this chaotic, clashing, politically explosive transition happening in Tallahassee all while there's this sort of nationally watched recount. And it was sort of a very explosive environment and, and not exactly what anyone expected at all, you know, because it was it, it really represented some high profile Republican on Republican crime. And generally in these situations for a transition, everyone wants to put on their best, happiest face. I know I was so struck by that in reading your piece, just how much like Republican on Republican crime, as you call it, there is in Florida. It's It's so funny to me how... They just seem to be knifing each other so much. Don't get me wrong. Everyone puts on the jersey at the rallies. I mean, everyone (laughs) rows in the same direction when they absolutely need to. 
But there's a lot of really ambitious politicians in Florida, and I don't think they have any problem trying to hop over someone in their same party to to reach whatever their desired endgame is. And, you know, the, the thing that trumps partisan allegiance here in Florida, like a lot of places, is ambition, and there's ample supplies of it. In some ways, a lot of the reporting and speculation about 2024 seems like an odd choice because it just feels so far away. But I do think what's interesting for political reporters like us is following around these political figures before they're nationally known. I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about how Rubio, DeSantis, and Scott have changed in the years that you've covered them and as they've been in the spotlight a little bit more? Uh, I would say with the, the, actually the most notable attribute with, with Governor Scott from the moment he came into office when it was a, when it was a nobody even here. He remember he, he didn't there were, he held no lower political office. He was a wealthy guy who just decided he wanted to be governor of Florida and kind of came out of nowhere, steamrolled Florida's Republican establishment using seventy million dollars of his own money and became governor. What I think the most remarkable attribute about that is actually the fact he hasn't changed in the past 12 or so years. If you hear Rick Scott give a press conference or talk to anyone, there is a, a sort of a robotic and almost admirable ability to stick to the talking points. He almost sounds as though you're talking to a Senate robot you know, or, or, a, <laughs> a, a, or a gubernatorial robot where you can say, you know, we used to joke in the Florida press corps, his, his thing was always jobs, jobs, jobs. That was sort of the, the messaging. And we always joked we could say, well, Governor Scott, what color is the sky today? And he would look at you and say, well, Matt, it's jobs. And that, <laughs> th- that has been Governor, now Senator Scott throughout. He remains, he, he, he's got to, sits on top of a, a, a political machine that broke every fundraising record in Florida. He is a, a, a national politician to the degree that he has the talent and the team to, to do this. But his personality and how he carries himself as, as, as a public figure has not changed at all. Um, I, I think when you look at Rubio, um, the change is some of the things we've already talked about. He's a former speaker of the Florida House, so he has a bit more of a political pedigree here in Florida than Scott or DeSantis, who kind of came out of nowhere. So he was a fairly polished politician. In, in 2016, he went in a knife fight with President Trump, and you know President Trump generally has the bigger knife in those moments. And now he's slowly kind of coming back to try to ingratiate himself with, with President Trump's orbit and become you know what I think looks more like a, a traditional Rubio or a traditional politician. So I, I think that's been his evolution. And DeSantis, I'm not sure that we know yet. We've seen it a little bit. He's only been governor for uh, 16, 17 months. But what is, what is notable, what we can say about, if you want to talk about an evolution with him, is he came in and surprised a lot of people by his first two legislative sessions here in Florida. He was very moderate. Uh, his biggest policy priorities were, were boosting funding for the environment, the Everglades, which, which a lot of people know nationally. He was a big proponent of funding for that. He wanted teacher pay raises. Some of the policy issues that aren't necessarily uh, an inherent part of the Republican brand were things that were his biggest policy priorities. And as a result, he had bipartisan support. His approval ratings were in the mid to high 60s. He was one of the most uh, popular, you know, by, by public polling at least, one of the most popular governors in the country. And since coronavirus has started, he has gotten much more aggressive in tone. He's gone back to Fox News, which he didn't do uh, since the campaign, kind of gone back to political muscle memory. And he's speaking to the Republican base and, and the, the Trump supporters who really helped him become governor, which is definitely an evolution from a, a moderate bipartisan guy who even Democrats are cautiously optimistic about. And now we're to a point where he's, he's very much a base brand uh, governor. Is there daylight between Trump and these, uh, you know, Florida 2024 hopefuls 
on either politics or policy issues? I, I would say very little other than a lot of them try to craft their own policy proposals around President Trump. Rick Scott was one of the first major politicians to endorse Trump. He was way ahead of the others. He he actually chaired a super PAC that raised $25 million for, for President Trump's election. So he kind of was the the pro-Trump Florida politician before all the others were. I mean, there was Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio were, were running in that election cycle, and, and Rick Scott, the sitting governor of Florida, was with President Trump. So the there are Republicans here, I suppose, who you know certainly wouldn't brand themselves as Trump Republicans, but the ones who have national aspirations or even, even want to be ascendant uh, in, in the state apparatus are tethered fairly closely to the president. Daylight between the president and Florida Republicans, daylight with the president isn't a good recipe for sort of, you know, Florida Republicans who want to, you know, have a a positive trajectory in in Florida here. Yeah. And I'm curious about the state's response to the coronavirus and, and whether that is helping or hurting each of these Florida politicians' political ambitions. You mentioned that DeSantis has become very defensive over his response. Uh, you know, Vice President Mike Pence is down in Florida on Wednesday with DeSantis meeting with him. What is the virus and sort of the uncertain nature of it doing to help or hurt any of them? I think from an up or down arrow perspective, DeSantis is the only one really, uh, you know, facing that sort of judgment. Rick Scott is trying to, and Rick Scott is is phenomenally good at getting headlines. He he sort of sends out that press release that as members of the press, you want to ignore, but you just can't, you know. So it, so he gets a lot of headlines and he's good at it. Marco Rubio has had a, a, a fairly large role in, in, in PPP and, and the, the committee that he chairs in the Senate has put together some of those relief packages. But DeSantis is really getting sort of the, the national attention as a governor that has just been different. Um, he, he, he never, he did a statewide stay at home order, for instance, after 30 other governors did, and he's been criticized for that nationally. He never closed the beaches and some of those pictures went national and got the state some, some, you know, some scorn and some, you know, wagging of the finger. But what he keeps pointing out and he's doing it fairly aggressively and the tone sometimes muddles the message, but he's pointing out that the forecasts here in Florida never got to where a lot of the public health experts thought they'd get. They never maxed out on hospital beds. They never maxed out on ventilator usage. So part of what is motivating DeSantis's new aggressive tone and new aggressive brand of politics is the fact that he was right, or at least righter than some of his critics. And he's, um, you know, that that is the the way he is reacting to that, I think, is hurting his overall approval rating because he's lost Democrats who are kind of had this uneasy truce with him on policy. And, and so right now he, he's got the Republican base. He's lost Democrats. And right now in, in Florida, there's kind of this fight for the middle. And his team is, I, I guess, made the calculation that sort of assuming a, a more sharp-tongued approach to politics is, is, is the path forward for him. And we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I'm just curious about Florida's role in this upcoming presidential election. You know, Trump won it by won the state by just 1.2 percentage points in 2016. And people I talk to see feel like it's going to be close again for him this year. So what are you seeing on the ground there? And what are these politicians doing, if anything, to help boost Trump's chances? Because it does seem like if Trump doesn't win re-election, it will also hurt their political futures. Yeah, as far as 
Florida being a close state, if you ever see a poll that has a margin more than, you know, two points, it's wrong. The average margin, I think over the past, I think that I just saw this like three or four cycles has been 1.2 points. The last two, there was five recounts in the state of Florida just last election cycle. So things are close here. Um, it is it is absolutely a margins game. So that is going to happen again. I, I would be shocked, you know, a, a five points here is a blowout. So that without question, I, I think is going to define 2020 again, even though it is, I think without question, certainly the weirdest election cycle I've ever covered, you know, <laughs> being not the focus, which isn't normal, especially during a presidential year. Yeah. And it seems like Florida is going to be so key to whether or not Trump wins re-election. And then it seems like a whole new crop of Republican candidates uh, will be waiting in 2024 to potentially run for president uh, from the state. Oh, without question. I do think there is some growing sense, even among the the folks here that we talked to in that, that crop you mentioned, that even if the president were to lose, I don't know that anyone expects his voice to disappear. Um, I, I don't think any Republican candidate headed into 2024, even if it is former President Trump, wants him going out on whatever Fox News or the Trump News Network or whatever pops up and in, in criticizing your campaign. I, I still think he's going to have a big voice and sort of an influential role. And, and that's my sense among the teams here that they are preparing themselves for, you know, if Trump wins re-election or not, they're kind of preparing themselves the same way with the, the same messaging and, and the same sort of strategy. I, I don't know that a loss would would impact his importance in, you know, a Republican primary for at least the near future. I agree. As someone who covers the White House, I feel like even if he doesn't win, he'll play a really outsized role in fundraising. And then he'll always have his Twitter feed. Yeah, we have a governor here in Florida who owes the governor's mansion to President Trump's Twitter feed. So <laughs> the Twitter flex is very much a real thing in Florida. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Matt. I appreciate you coming on Nerdcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Here are a few other things I'm watching this coming week as a White House reporter. One, I'm watching how the reopening in states around the country goes. There's a bunch of different states that are reopening their economy. Retail stores are starting to open their doors. Restaurants are doing business at a reduced capacity. Beaches are opening, public parks. So I'm really curious to see how that goes in the states politically and then just how it goes from a health perspective. Do we see the infection rate continue to go down and are hospitals really feeling like we're over the hump? Or do we see a spike in infections? I think it's really an open question about which way this will go. The second thing I'm watching is what is the status of the negotiations on the Hill for the next stimulus package? Trillions of dollars have gone out the door already to help businesses, to help unemployed individuals, and there's definitely appetite among Democrats for another package. There's a lot of disagreement over whether the next package should help state and local governments and whether or not it should give businesses basically a free pass on liability if they bring back workers and those workers get sick. And so I'll be watching to see if there's a greater sense of urgency than we've seen in the past few weeks to pass that type of package and what the time frame really looks like and how the White House is trying to move that along. And then finally, I'm really watching to see what the president does in terms of his re-election message. After Memorial Day, there are a bunch of Trump advisors that want him to really start going after Biden. The president himself wants to start traveling. So now that we're really hitting crunch time in terms of the re-election, and it's happening against the backdrop of a pandemic, I want to see how the re-election campaign starts to ramp up 
both in terms of its attack on Trump's opponent, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, but also how Trump starts to travel again and how his campaign is trying to adapt to the idea of holding rallies or holding events that excite his base in the age of a pandemic. All right, that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Scott is out for the next few weeks on paternity leave, but we have a bunch of great guest hosts. See you soon, and thanks for listening.